Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are uh, coming to the third section of the first Parsha of the book of Shemot, of the book of Exodus. And we are, uh, we skipped Moses's birth his growing up years, his uh, teenage years, and his getting married and st- and starting a family. So all of that happened in the first two thirds of the Parsha. So, um, but if any of you have ever been to a Passover Seder, you know something about uh, some of that, right? So he's born, he's drawn, uh, Shifra and Pua, the midwives save his life. They don't kill him like they're supposed to. Then... Yocheved has to give him up when he becomes old enough to start making a lot of noise. And then the daughter of Pharaoh draws him out of the water, if you'll recall. She calls him Moshe, for she drew him out of the water. And then um, he, if you'll recall, kills a taskmaster and now is a fugitive because you can't kill someone uh, in Pharaoh's retinue without forfeiting your life. Only Pharaoh gets to do that. And so he's a fugitive. He flees to Midian. There, there we have the typical betrothal scene at the well. And so he is at the well and uh, meets Tsipora. She has, there are seven daughters of the high priest of Midian, of Yitro. And so um, he courts Tsipora. They think he's Egyptian. Remember, he's been raised in the palace. So he uh, has Egyptian customs and ways and looks Egyptian and... His manners are probably of the palace uh, in Egypt. So this is who Sipora understands Moshe to be. Moshe is a shepherd for his father-in-law. And one day tending the sheep, if you'll recall, he has this wonderful scene at a bush where he notices that the bush is on fire, but it is not being consumed. This is Moses's commissioning. God tells Moshe he's going to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go. And Moshe declines, says, thank you very much. You've got the wrong guy. So um, so that's important. That's an important piece. Moshe really tries to push back hard on his mission, which um, is often the case with the hero, that the hero goes reluctantly on the journey. Uh, but Moshe pushes back pretty hard. Uh, against God. Remember, I, I can't speak. I'm a man, you know, he, he has trouble speaking, he says. So um, God says, I'll have Aaron speak for you, but yada, yada, yada. That happens now. Um, we are at uh, the place where God is saying, okay, it's time. Stop messing around. It is time to go back to Egypt. It is time to be about your uh, mission to help free my people, the Israelites. And here we are. That's where we're beginning. So Moshe went to his father-in-law, Yeter. He's called Yeter here. Notice who is Yeter in the Hebrew. Uh, Here we have the word chotno. Moshe's choten. What is a choten? So this is a very interesting kinship term that I just studied with my Chavruta partner in preparation for this class, which is why I was not going to bail on this class. I've spent hours preparing for this class. Um, and one of the things I learned is that Chotan, those of us who know modern Hebrew would think Chatan, which is uh, groom. Chatan is groom. 
So Chotno means his what? Well, we know Yeter, Yitro, is his father-in-law. But also a Choten can be a son-in-law. So when we looked up the etymology of this word, it seems that Choten comes from Chatan, which is about marriage. And so it's, it's anyone who becomes your kin through marriage. So you can acquire a father-in-law, a son-in-law, and a husband. So this term... like machatunim? That's machatunim comes from chatan. Yes, your in-laws. So machatunim, the people who became chatan, or became my relatives through chatan, through a wedding. So this, um, so this term... And, and it's going to be important later. So we're seeing it here. It's going to be important in the episode we're going to look at. So remember Chutno, his Chuten, his, in this case, father-in-law, but his relative through marriage. So he goes to Yeter, his father-in-law, and says to him, uh, let me go back to my kinsmen in Egypt and see how they are faring. And Yitro said to Moshe, go in peace. Remember um, Yaakov, you know, leaves Lavan in the middle of the night, you know, so Moshe is asking his father-in-law's permission to separate from the house, from the household. And so God says to Moshe in Midian, Lech, go, right? We know this from Avraham, Lech, go. Shuv Mitzrayim, go back to Egypt. Kimetu because because have died who all of the people who sought your life okay so people who sought to kill moshe are now dead says god so go back to egypt so moshe took his wife and his sons so he has sons and he puts them on the donkey and he returns to the land of egypt and Moshe takes the mateh, the staff, ha'elohim, of God in his hand. And God says to Moshe, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the marvels that I have put within your power. I, however, will stiffen his heart so that he will not let the people go. Don't worry, George, we're going to get back to this. You know that. We're going to come back to that, but not today. Okay. So verse 22 Right, Margot. And you shall say to Paro, thus says Yudhe Israel is Bichori, is my firstborn son. Remember that. Chotno, the people who sought to kill him. And now God calls Israel my firstborn son. And I have said, this is what Moshe is to say to Pharaoh let my son go that he may worship me. Yet you refuse to let him go. Now I will slay your firstborn son. Okay, these are important elements to understand our story. Now, I'm going to say that night encampment, okay, but that makes it sound like maybe, you know, he's hanging out on the outskirts of town. He's at a malon. Um, I shouldn't say he. Um, cause it's not clear, but at a night encampment, so at a malone, at a hotel, at an inn, 
right? It's on the way. He's uh, there, There's an in. That yud vav met him and sought to kill him. Now, the first big question is, who is he? God met him at a hotel on the way and sought to kill him. Who is him? Vatikach Tsipora Tsar. So Tsipora, um, Tsipora takes a tsor. So you can hear the, the word play there. Vatikach Tsipora Tsor. And she cuts off the foreskin of her son. And she touches it to his legs. And says, for you are a chatan. I'm not going to translate it. You are a chatan damim. A chatan of blood to me. Now, the question is, who... Sipora cuts off the foreskin of her son and touches it to his legs. Whose legs? Does she touch it to the son's legs? Does she touch it to Moshe's legs? Does she touch it to somebody else's legs? We don't know. But she says, you have become a chatan of blood to me. And he withdrew from him. And she adds chatan damim lamulot, which is, I don't know if this is a clarification or if the, uh, some people want to suggest the author is trying to figure it out here. Um, but, but chatan damim, a chatan of blood regarding mula, mulot, circumcision. And God said to Aharon, go to meet Moshe in the wilderness. He went and met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him. Moshe told Aaron about all the things that the Lord had committed to him and all the signs with which God had instructed him. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Okay. All right. So this is, <laughs> this is what I did all day yesterday. All right, so here we have the uh, scene that we just studied in the text. I haven't had time to fix the God language to Yudhe Vafe, but I'll do that before Bert posts it. All right, so looking from the earliest times, there's lots of disagreement about what's going on here. So who did God seek to kill? Moshe or Moshe's son? Why doesn't Moshe know what to do? How come it's Tsipora that knows what to do? Tsipora acts and it's the right thing. She does the right thing because the the whatever it was that sought to kill Moshe or the son or whoever withdraws and they live. So we don't know who's being attacked. Yudhe Vavi is doing the attacking. The rabbis don't like that. The rabbis in classical antiquity don't like that. They cannot have God coming down and like doing stuff like that. So for them, it's an angel. It's a destroyer, just like we have in the plague in Egypt. So possibly she touches the foreskin to the Malach's legs for some of our classical interpreters. All right, so let's go to Talmud. So one of the earliest commentaries um, that we see or, or talking about these stories is in the Talmud. So in Nidarim, which is fitting, right, talks about um, bows. 
Rabbi Yehuda Bar taught, at the time that Moshe, our teacher, was negligent about the circumcision, the destructive angels named Af, meaning anger, and Chema, meaning wrath, came and swallowed him. And only his legs were left outside, meaning something comes to swallow him from the head down, and only his legs were left outside. Immediately, Sipora took a flint and cut off the foreskin of her son, and immediately he withdrew. He let him alone. All right, so I, I promise I'll, I'll interpret, because um, it's going to happen again. We're going to get that again. Then also in the same tractate, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel says, it was not Moshe, our teacher, that Satan wanted to kill, but rather that infant who was not circumcised. As it is stated, surely a bridegroom of blood are you to me. Go out and see. Who does it make sense would be the one that is called the bridegroom in this instance. You must say this is the infant since he is the one who entered the covenant of Abraham by means of circumcision. So you can see as early as the Talmud, there's no agreement about what's going on here, who this is. The infant here is the one attacked, not Moshe. And in Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel's interpretation, it's, uh, it's the baby who's called the bridegroom of blood because the baby enters the covenant of marriage essentially between Israel and God through circumcision. All right. So let's look at another interpretation from Shmot Rabbah. So uh, around the same time uh, as the Talmud. And it happened on the way of the inn. So this is the quote from Torah. They're on the way at a hotel. Beloved is circumcision that Moshe could not delay on it even an hour. Therefore, when he was on the way and took care of the needs at the inn, and was careless regarding circumcising his son Eliezer, immediately Hashem encountered him and tried to kill him. You find that this was a merciful angel, and still he wanted to kill him. And Zipporah took a flint. And how did Zipporah know that Moshe was endangered because of the dealings with circumcision? The angel came and swallowed Moshe from his head until his place of circumcision. When she saw that the angel did not swallow him completely, But just up to the point of circumcision, she realized that it was because of that that he was being attacked. And she understood how great is the power of circumcision because the angel could only swallow him up to there. Immediately, she cut the foreskin of her son and touched his feet with it. And she said, because you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She said, you will be my groom given to me for the merit of this blood of circumcision that behold, I kept the mitzvah. And immediately the angel let him go. And then she said, a bridegroom of the blood of circumcisions. She said, how powerful is circumcision that my groom was liable for death because he delayed to do the mitzvah and weren't for it, he would not have been saved. All right, so what is all of that gobbledygook saying? That is saying that in according to uh, Midrash Rabbah, Shmot Rabbah, Exodus Rabbah here. Um, uh, it's that we have the story again of Moshe being swallowed from the head to the point um, of circumcision. And because it stops there, that's how she knows. So this is clearly an old Midrash. We see it in the Talmud and we see it here in Midrash Rabbah. So this was understood. There was a source that was understood by the Talmud and by Midrash Rabbah. 
um, this this business of one one story has Moshe being swallowed first from the head to the point of circumcision, and the next one has him from the feet to the point of circumcision, and that's how Tzipora knew he got swallowed from both ends only to the point of circumcision, and that's how she knew that's what was going on. That was the danger, and and the way to protect whoever's being attacked. Um, and so she circumcises her son and she touches his feet with it. Raglayim legs also is a euphemism for genitalia in the Bible. So what is she touching? Right. Remember um, Boaz covering Ruth's, you know, the legs that covering the uncovering the legs business. So possibly, you know, it's about the point of Milah, the point of circumcision. Where is that? Well, that's the penis. So it could be a euphemism for that. Um, and so she's, it says here that because Moshe didn't circumcise his son when he was supposed to, his life was forfeit. And lots of the commentators agree about this point. Moshe's life is forfeit. And what she does is she, she, she restores Moshe's entitlement to life by circumcising their son. And that's how he becomes Moshe, a bridegroom of blood to her through the blood of circumcision. He is entitled then to his own blood, right? To his own life. All right, let's look at Sforno. What does Sforno have to say? When the time passed without Eliezer being circumcised, the angel in charge of circumcision requested to kill Moses for being negligent. So some of the commentators want to blame Moshe and say that he was negligent in the matter of circumcision. Um, and so some of the classic commentators, that's where they go, that Moshe didn't do what he was supposed to. He did not circumcise his son when he was supposed to. And there's an angel in charge of everything. And the angel in charge of circumcision says, oh, okay, well, guess what? I get, you know, I, there's a trade-off here. You don't do what you're supposed to do. I get you. So um, I get to go after Moshe because he didn't do what he was supposed to. Rashi doesn't like that so much. Rashi doesn't like holding Moshe accountable and saying Moshe, God forbid, didn't do one of the most important mitzvot there are. And at this point, they haven't been at Sinai. They don't even have any other commandments. One of the only, the only thing they have is circumcision. So Rashi doesn't like that. Um, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. How does Rashi explain this? You were to have caused my bridegroom to be slain on account of you. You would thus have been my husband's killer. So who, do, who does Rashi say she's talking to? Rashi says that Tipora is talking to the baby. The baby is her choten damim because he's, he would have caused her bridegroom, Moshe, to be bloodied on account of him, the baby, Right. And in that sense, you would have been my husband's killer. Okay. And at the end, she says again, Amra Khatanda Mimlimalot. She said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcisions. My bridegroom was on the point of being killed on account of supervision. So again, the bridegroom um, is Moshe, and the, the blood issue was seeking to kill him. Then she understood, goes Rashi on, she understood that on account of delaying the circumcision, he had come to kill him. 
She said, bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. My bridegroom would have been killed on account of delaying it. Ibn Ezra says, it is the custom of women to refer to a child as a bridegroom when he is circumcised. So Ibn Ezra explains why some people interpret this as the baby being the one um, that is attacked and the baby's the one she's calling a bridegroom of blood because um, the child was called a chotan sometimes or chatan um, when talking about his circumcision because the baby's entering a covenant and just like the covenant of marriage, right? The baby's entering the covenant of the people of Israel and so this term is used, chatan. Okay, now, the other issue here is it's very confusing. Who, who's, what, who's going where? What's happening where? A lot of our classical commentators want to suggest that Moshe's not even here. Moshe's not at the inn. And other classical commentators want to suggest that these events are out of order and that there's a little confusion to the order of this and the order should be rearranged about who's going where when. So remember, he tells Yeter he's going to go to Egypt. Then he puts his wife and and uh, kid, the kids on a donkey. Then it says something sought to kill him. Who's the him? Well, if Moshe's not there, it can't be Moshe, obviously. Um, so let's look at um, Rabbeinu Hananel. And it was on the way, right, that something sought to kill him, that that, that God sought to kill him. Moses was not present at the inn, says uh, Hananel. The Torah had written prior to this that Moses had taken his wife and son and let them ride on the donkey. The meaning of the verse is that he sent his family ahead of him. Immediately afterwards, we are told that Moses himself returned to Egypt. If the Torah reports sequentially, Moses could not have been at the inn at the time Zipporah had this encounter, then what does that mean? He sought to kill him. The person under threat of death was the boy. Seeing that the angel had assumed the form of a serpent about to swallow the little boy. So a variant tradition on this being swallowed business is that the serpent was about to swallow the boy. This serpent then spit out the boy and began to devour him from the opposite end, swallowing up to the part where the circumcision was to be performed. At that point, Vatikach and Sipora took a flint knife and understood what the problem was, specifically that they were being punished for being tardy in performing the boy's circumcision so that she herself performed it with a sharp flint. All right. So if Moshe's not even at the inn because they were on the donkey, they would have gotten there a lot quicker than him. Then obviously it's the boy who's being attacked. Um, all right. So now I want to go to, to some, conti- well, let me stop there. Is there any, is there any questions? <laughs> any questions? Um, well, um, the, the, the issue and the, or, or the culture of circumcision, um, comes up with Abraham, um, uh, very prominently. And I'm wondering why we are reading why we have a debate about circumcision in this part of Torah. What, what do you mean? What, a, a debate about what? Uh, about circumcision. Why do we have another debate about circumcision in this part of Torah, in this part of biblical history? Or uh, it, does, it doesn't seem it's a debate. It seems Moshe did is not... Is it a reminder? 
Most right. So the question is, what's it doing here? That's that's a legit question, right? What what is this doing here? What's this about? Is it is it is it because our Jewish protagonist um, <coughs> married a Gentile? Well, what's fascinating is it's the Gentile woman who knows what to do. Right. It's the Gentile woman who saves the day. Not only is she Gentile, what is she? She's the daughter of the high priest of Midian. So possibly a priestess in her own right, right? You studied enough of this business or, you know, from this neighborhood to know a little bit. We could assume she might be a priestess. Um, if, if not, she's certainly well-versed in, in the ways of the rituals of Midian. And it is she who not only knows what to do, but knows how to do it. Right now, this is written at a time where flint would not have been used for these things. Already, a metal would have been used. Why does it say flint then? Because um, so it it was. It's often in ritual things that that you are very conservative, right? So you use the old stuff when you're doing ritual. So this was not surgery. This clearly was a ritual. And the daughter of the high priest knew what to do here. So, and did it. She knew how to do it. That's not exactly like a intuitive skill, cutting off someone's foreskin (laughs) with a flint knife and not rendering them (laughs) unable to have children, right? Like, so this is a very technical thing and she, boom, does it. So either she's got experience with this or she's certainly seen it but she knows what to do and she knows how to do it. So what was I saying? But, but Abraham used a flint, right? Do I remember right? I don't know that it tells us. You have to look it up, Mama. Uh, I may have remembered it from the Islamic tradition. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it tells us. I think it just says he circumcises his son. Because ah. he circumcises Ishmael and then he circumcises uh, Isaac I don't know that. I don't think we're told with what. So, but but you can check me on that. I may not be remembering correctly. So, um, so in, in any case, it, there's a delay. It's a danger. It's going to cause a real problem. <laughs> this delay in circumcision. So, it is something about the centrality of circumcision. We're going to look at some modern commentary. So, remind me, Mehmet. We're going to look at some modern commentary that suggests why it might be so critical at this moment. And why with Moshe, right? So, so hold on to that. I'm not sure all of it is about circumcision. I think some of it may be literary. And many scholars believe we have lost the bigger story. That people used to know what this was all about. And that we've lost the surrounding material. But the core episode made it into the final redaction. Because you, you had to have this story of the attack at the inn on the way to Moshe becoming the leader of the Jewish people. It's interesting that, and we'll see it in, I don't want to jump ahead and, and, and spoil the commentary for you, but, um, but there is this idea that for him to be the leader of the Jewish people, his son had to be brought into the covenant of the Jewish people. He, his son had to be identified as an Israelite. And the way to do that is circumcision. Who's the one who made Moshe a fully kosher Israelite? An Israelite father, because an Israelite father has to circumcise his son. The command is on the father, not the boy, and not the mother. Who's the one that made uh, Moshe a full-fledged Israelite 
by circumcising his son, Sipporah. Sipporah, the non-Israelite. The non-Israelite. The non-Israelite parent. How many times do we see the non-Jewish parent driving the children to Hebrew school? People want to get all up about, you know, intermarriage. Well, guess what? It is often the non-Jewish partner who is the one who's invested in making sure the children have a Jewish education and have Jewish experiences and have Seder and have everything else, right? So it's, I just find it fascinating that it is, it is an ancient understanding, not a new one. It's not an apologetic for intermarriage. This was assumed, right? But I find it fascinating that the non-Israelite woman made her husband, the future leader of the Israelite people, a full Israelite. Interesting. Barry? I have a small comment about the Midianites. Uh, you froze right at that moment. are really um, relative way uh, because Abraham married another woman after uh, Sarah died. And this woman gave birth to, to the father of the Midianite nation. Yeah, Keturah. Yeah. So they had, so not, I would say not all non-Israelites are the same. <laughs> right. So they're Some possibly, they're, they're, they're sort of cousins, right? Um, and, but you remember, we're going to have some issues with the Midianites, right? Sure, with the, uh, most issues are with your family. <laughs> so uh, right, there's going to be there's going to be an attack on the Midianites. So yeah, but so these stories are written at different points of Israelite relationships to the Midianite people. So right, if these stories are written over a very long period of time, and they reflect different points in Israel's history and their relationships uh, with the Midianite people. Um, okay, Mark. You know, uh, first of all, before uh, what I was going to say is I was fascinated to hear what Mehmet said about the Islamic tradition, that uh, a similar uh, situation occurs in the Islamic tradition. And I wonder if in that uh, in that tradition as well, there is such confusion, such um, a sudden upwelling of anxiety in the um, in the story that um, both before and after is told in a very straightforward and precise way, even though many of the events are extremely emotional events. But here, all of a sudden, there is tremendous anxiety around the issue of circumcision. Uh, Perhaps uh, one could allow that it's a, a symbolic castration, that in the older totemic tradition, has to do with uh, with membership in the uh, in the tribe in the group, and um, it seems as though um, uh, and I, I really haven't been able to think this through, but slightly before it is the oh boy, you're not you're not in danger of being swallowed from the top down, are you? <laughs> but but um, uh, slightly before it. Um, there is uh, something else that uh, that struck me, and that I uh, have a feeling 
may be related to this. And that is when Yudhe says to Moses that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and that that then becomes the reason that the firstborn sons of Egypt can be slain. Um, this, it, that, that, this all seems to me to go together and I haven't really sure. had to think it through. In any For way. sure. So, so hold that Mark, because that's exactly what I was saying to Mehmet is hold that. Cause I think part of it is about circumcision. I think, I think a, lot of, a lot of it is about identity in terms Michael of Michael Berlin, 2020. About what you just said in terms uh, of uh, membership in the tribe. full membership in the group. You didn't become a full member in many communities until you had the rights of fertility, right? The the rights of adolescence. That's when you became a man. You became a full member of the tribe. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is totally in in many ways about that and about exactly what you just said. So we're going to go look at some more commentary because it's going to get exactly to that point. This is about the firstborn of Egypt, that you may not have the right to be the deliverer of the death of the firstborn of Egypt unless and until you have dealt with your firstborn, mm-hmm. who you now redeem from <coughs> that slaying by them by him being circumcised. Mm-hmm. So good. You already went there. Good. Okay. All right. So let's look at. All right, so this was very interesting, this Ilana Pardes. And I just ordered this book because I was like, this is just way up my alley. Um, so she she's talking about Sipora, And she says, if Yocheved is the one who most clearly resembles Isis in her role as the suckling goddess, right? Because she nurses her son. Yocheved is paid by Pharaoh's daughter to nurse Moshe, right? Till he's weaned. So till he's about three or four. If if Yocheved represents or resembles Isis in her role as the suckling goddess, Sipora, Moses's wife, calls to mind the winged savior. Sipora, which in Hebrew, by the way, means bird. Sipora, one should bear in, oh, there, <laughs> bear in mind, means bird in Hebrew. And this is but one feature that points to her affinity with the goddess. Much like Isis, Sipora plays the role of a savior rescuing her husband from the wrath of a persecuting deity. The scene of rescue takes place in a strange, dramatic night, right after Moses's initiation by the burning bush. God, who had just sent Moses back to Egypt to do wonders before Pharaoh and the people, suddenly attacks his messenger on the road. Sipora springs out of the dark and intervenes with unexpected force, right? Yudhei Vavri succumbs to Sipora's magical act and withdraws, and Moses is saved. The story of the bridegroom of blood offers a perplexing counterpart to the episode of the burning bush. Here too, as in the nation's biography, initiation is a process that requires more than one right and more than one representation. Moses's initial refusal to assume the position of deliverer in Exodus 3, turns into an eerie combat in Exodus 4. For here, God's anger is conveyed by means of concrete violence and his insistence on having total possession of the one he had chosen comes close to murder. Sipora's intervention is the most radical supplement. It seems to suggest that a feminine touch 
must be added before Moshe's initiation can be regarded as complete. So Mark, kind of to your point about, right, this is about initiation for this uh, anthropologist who's looking at the Hebrew Bible through an anthropological lens. Most ceremoniously, as her bridegroom of blood, she Moses ceremoniously as her bridegroom of blood, she takes him as it were under her wings. Women and mothers in particular, despite or rather because of their powerlessness, often have an important role in teaching the weak and threatened young heroes how to handle hostile paternal figures. Rebecca offers such help to Jacob, right, uh, as in his uh, struggling to become the firstborn, right, against Isaac's will. That Sipporah's opponent is the father himself makes her all the more startling. She placates Yudhe by complying partially and cunningly with his whims. Her strategy is synecdochic, a foreskin and a touch of blood for the victim's life. And yes, I had to look up how to say that word on the internet. Yes, I did. If she can ward off divine violence, she seems to assert, so can Moses. The mission will take its bloody toll. She marks Moses or her son with blood, foreshadowing the two scenes in which the nation is marked by blood on the night of the Exodus and then again on accepting the book of the covenant at Sinai. The history of the people is already inscribed on his body and the body of their son. He must go on. All right. Tipora is sent off by Moses after this nocturnal episode, and we do not hear of her until she returns to the camp in Exodus 18. And this person is arguing the rabbis in any event sensed the quest for maternal wings on this mountain and beyond it and fashioned a female symbol of the divine presence called Shechina. So they're saying, so she's saying, Tsipora, Uri, and Yocheved, these are all ancient, you know, pedimentos of different, you know, goddess figures. Uh, and, you know, the matriarchs become that, as we've talked about before, you know, the the cow goddess, the the sheep goddess, right? All that stuff. So we've seen this before. This is not unfamiliar to us, um, but it's interesting that she places it within the the tradition of the hero, and that you know she takes on the murdering father, the murderous father, and knows what to do to protect the hero and help initiate him into taking his uh, rightful place <clears throat> as the leader, who's going to have to be dealing with a lot of blood. There's and the river's gonna the Nile's gonna turn to blood. There's gonna be right the blood of the firstborn. There's gonna be so there's blood everywhere. They're gonna put blood on the doorposts. Um. So anyway, so that to mark to your thing about the, you know, I think castration is here for sure, right? The threat of castration, the threat of the father coming after the son, right? Uh, who's trying to be initiated into adulthood, um, is all here. I think that's all here. Okay, so let's look. I, it's a little more straightforward. This was, I just put this one in here. Um, the Omer calendar of biblical women. I just thought that was interesting. Um, you can look at it um, on your own if you want. Uh, but Julia, Julia Franco uh, says she she's looking at what's going on here. And she says it would be hypocritical if Moshe claimed to speak for his people while refusing to uphold one of his people's most important traditions, circumcision. So this has to be taken care of for Moshe to be a legitimate leader of the Israelite people. 
She says translator Everett Fox takes a more literary approach, saying this scene serves as an end bracket to Moses's sojourn in Midian. As mentioned earlier, Moses flees Egypt under pain of death. Here on his return, <clears throat> he's in mortal danger once more. So she's so Everett Fox suggests it's a literary device. Moses' life is in danger when he goes to Midian because he's going as a refugee, right? He's running from Pharaoh who wants to kill him for killing the taskmaster. And now coming out of Midian, his life is in danger again. Okay, that's kind of cool. Second, our passage seems to be an inclusio or bracketing passage for the entire plague narrative. God designating Israel God's firstborn. Remember I said, remember this? God says you're going to say to Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn. Let Israel go worship me. And alluding to the future killing of Pharaoh's firstborn or Egypt's firstborn sons demonstrates his power as a life taker, meaning God, to be pacified or turned away only by a ceremonial blood smearing parallel to the Israelite smearing of blood on their doorposts when their own firstborn are threatened by the 10th plague. So that's interesting. God as destroyer, the taker of life. And how do you protect against that? By smearing blood. And so in that sense, Sipporah smears blood on somebody. It's not just she touches the foreskin. The foreskin would be bloody. Her hands would be bloody. So she smears blood on either her son or Moses, the same way the Israelites are going to smear blood on the doorposts. That's how you protect against the destroyer killing the firstborn. Okay. Two final points should be noted here. It's the act of circumcision that Moses finally becomes a true Israelite. We talked about this uh, a little bit. The person who saves Moshe's life in adulthood is a woman. I love that she's echoing uh, the midwives. And Pharaoh's daughter, and Yocheved, all who worked together to save Moses as an infant and as a toddler. But then here, his life has to be saved again in adulthood by another woman. Like, it makes sense. It's all women who save uh, Moshe's life. Um, it implies that it was Tzipporah who needed to prove something because she's the one who acts in the story. What is she proving? She seems to be proving her child's right and by extension, her own right to be included in God's covenant. She is physically marking her son as an Israelite. Why does this scene happen now? They've been married for a while, right? So God should have objected much sooner. Why does God choose this moment to intervene? Sipporah is a Midianite. She has no personal experience of slavery and subjugation. Here, she gets a taste of what the Israelites have suffered. Pharaoh brought death upon the male infants. God threatens death upon Sipporah's male family members. So in this sense, she's saying, Julia Franco is saying, this is to give Sipporah a little experience with what it is to be a Jew, right? She's the daughter of a very prestigious Midianite, the high priest of Midian. She's had a privileged life like Moses did in the palace. She doesn't know garnished about suffering or what it's going to mean to be, (coughs) you know, the Israelite nation. So in this sense, it happens now because she gets a sense and a taste of what that's like. This is what it's like, God seems to be saying, to be helpless before someone stronger than you. This is what it's like to see those you love in danger. This is what your husband's people, your people, if you choose to claim them, have suffered for 400 years. Can you handle it? 
Sipora <clears throat> unequivocally answers yes. She's prepared to do whatever's necessary to protect her family. Yes. She understands the obligation she's taken on. Yes. She's prepared to uphold God's commandments, even the difficult ones. It's a moment of conversion, a bloody, painful conversion, but a conversion nonetheless. The Israelite people are often referred to as the bride of God, right? And so uh, essentially that's What's going on here? Tzipora is addressing God directly, just as her husband does. She, she so he, she's saying here the phrase "bridegroom of blood" um, is God, meaning I'm coming into relationship with God by doing this act. I, Tzipora, now have a covenant with the Israelite God. You, God, are now a bridegroom to me. She's. She treats the circumcision as a marriage vow, binding her and God together. She is ready to take her place as part of the Israelite people. That is a very interesting read to me that she says to God, you're trying to be a killer here, but I know what to do. I'm going to fully take this on. You don't scare me. Not only don't you scare me, I'm going to marry you. (laughs) Right. Which is. Come on, people. Like, if that isn't what conversion is, like, not only do you people not scare me, not only does your history not scare me, uh, I'm going to marry y'all. I'm going to become one of y'all, right? That is the paradigmatic um, conversion uh, experience to this day. Y'all don't scare me, <laughs> right? Uh, okay. Uh, I love Tikva Freimer Kensky, um, my teacher of blessed memory, um, who died of breast cancer way too young because her work was not nearly done, not nearly done. Um, she could translate Ugaritic and uh, Sumerian. She, they often came to her when they were unclear about something they found. Um, and she was an expert on the, uh, the goddess history that predates Israelite patriarchy. She was just one of the most brilliant human beings on the planet. So she has this whole piece in her book called Reading the Women of the Bible. uh, And she includes this episode in it. Um, And so she says, actually, that one of the things that might be going on here is that that Moses is dealing with blood guilt. That's one of the reasons blood is involved here is he spilled blood when he left Egypt. Um, So that he... He he's guilty of murder. And and so because of that, there's blood guilt here. And so so this has got to mean danger and scary stuff about blood and a ritual dealing with blood to clear Moshe's guilt um, of having committed murder. Perhaps the blood guilt might imperil him as he leaves on his mission and the blood serves as atonement. Or perhaps Moshe has done nothing wrong. And God attacks for the same reason God attacks Yaakov at the river in some kind of dangerous ordeal from which he will emerge transformed before he goes to complete his destiny. The text leaves the cause mysterious. Sipora doesn't hesitate or ask why, right? Nothing, nothing in here is clear. Does blood have the mystical protection properties uh, or is it only the blood of the firstborn, a foreshadowing of the blood of the Paschal lamb? Um, so there's something almost homeopathic about the saving power of blood. Perhaps circumcision contains this hair of the dog aspect, the synecdoche, whatever, like, right, the, the part standing for the whole. 
a small act of ritual violence to keep away another more dangerous act of violence. So whose feet does she touch with it? The you may be Moses, right? Uh, by calling Moses her bridegroom, Sipora may mean that this ritual has now united them in a blood-sealed covenant stronger than normal marriage. And in that sense, I would add she's just, in some ways, she's initiated her son into being a full Israelite. And so has joined, she, that is a different kind of status. Um, and that means she and Moses now have a different status if it's not an interfaith household, <laughs> right? Um but Chatan can also be son-in-law, as I pointed out earlier. Tzipora may be suggesting that she herself has become the virtual father-in-law of Moses by becoming a surrogate, sorry, by becoming the circumciser of the family. So in some cultures, in Arabic culture, the uh, they're, they're, first of all, in Arabic, the word Chatan, Chatana is, uh, is a word for circumcision, Possibly it is that the groom's in-laws were the ones who circumcised him, like preparing him for marriage to their daughter um, and to take his place as a a full member, uh, an adult member of, of the family. She assumed her own father's role, Jethro's role in the family, becoming a surrogate as she leaves his whole, his household. Uh, circumcision often has to be performed before marriage and Israel may have known customs in which the prospective father of the bride circumcised his son-in-law to be symbolically exposing and preparing the boy's genitalia. And I think Mark, to your point, also the threat of castration, right? That you expose, you expose his genitalia as he becomes a full member of your household to say, right, cross this household and (laughs) right. It is not going to go well for you. Moses cannot act. So she, now she lifts up the fact that Moses doesn't act. We're not sure. Um, Circumcision was widely practiced in the ancient world and may have had an apotropaic aspect in her tradition. So it's possible that circumcision was done by the Midianites. I couldn't find uh, evidence uh, either way. I didn't have time, Um, but uh, it was it was practiced widely. So it's, it's possible. Tzipora knows this from her own uh, religious life. And that's how she knew what to do and knew how to do it. There are ferocious females in the divine world. Ishtar acts as mother, particularly when she protects in war. Anat protects her brother by defeating his enemy, Mut. Isis protected her brother, Osiris, guarded his dead body and milked it to bring him back to life through his child, Horus. These goddesses are related to the animal kingdom. Um, No creatures are more protective of their own than the great eagles and hawks. It is no accident that Tsipora means bird. So she too, Tikva Frey also, like the one we saw before, connects Tsipora right to these goddesses that would have predated uh, Israelite um, monotheism and patriarchy. She she knows what to do. She's very clear. Tsipora acts to prevent a killing. In this experience of the frightening aspect of divine power, Moses's wife grows into a savior. She becomes a surrogate parent, protecting Moses as well as her children. Moses's Israelite biological mother and his Egyptian foster mother are now joined in a triad of saviors by this Midianite ritual mother. 
Now Moses will will turn from being the rescued to the rescuer, from the saved to the savior. I love this by Frank Murkensky, that um, this, this idea that it took all of these female, powerful, you know, uh, mothers to save, to rescue Moshe, right? Always the hero's life is in danger. That's how these stories happen. There has to be a threat to the hero's life. So he's rescued by these three powerful female forces. He is saved by them. And the third one, his ritual mother had to be involved uh, in order for him to become the rescuer, not the rescued, to become the savior, not the saved. I think that is a beautiful interpretation um, of this last act of, if you will, Moshe's initiation. Uh, those of you who have the women's Torah commentary, uh, there's a poem here called Wife of Moses by Shirley Kaufman. Um, something went wrong. When he told her to pack and went on listening to voices she couldn't hear, it wasn't her job, the blood on her fingers, this cut flesh, red love bites in the sand. The desert widens between them like an endless argument. His mouth is too soft for God's omnivorous rage. Fish will die, the river stink, and lice and flies and boils and the rest. Slice of the covenant, blood on the doors. He's off to his mountain. She'll lose what she saves, fallout of the future, thankless, nothing to lean on but her own arms, holding the small face, unfathered anyway, crying between her hands. Um, a difficult, uh, a difficult poem talking about the fact that Sipor is left out of some things. She's going to lose um, Moses, that he's going to go be the savior and she's not going to have access to him anymore. Um, anyway, um, and then, uh, Lynn Himmelstein, I'm not sure if you're here. Um, so I want to, uh, say that I included this thinking, particularly of all y'all, uh, who are theater people, um, a rendering of, uh, uh, this scene with Sipora. The blood is dripping off Sipora's fingers and Moses can't tear his eyes away. His first mother may have held him with such hands when she gave birth to him. He imagines them sometimes, chafed by servitude, stained with labor. He imagines them reaching down to her thighs and pulling him out, life gore and all. His second birth, the one he knows about, was different. His second mother's hands pulled him from the river's water. The hands remained unsoiled. There was no blood to mark his passage into life. A bridegroom of blood, Sipora spits at him. And finally, he doesn't need to imagine. He can finally see, truly see, the bloodied hands of a woman forming life. You saved us, he wants to tell her, but words fail him. As he told God earlier, he is not a man of words. You took me back to my very beginning, he wants to add then. You gave me life through blood. I am reborn. Moses doesn't know it yet but he will never be free from the shadow of his second birth. Water and miracles will continue to define his trials and his fate. He will lead his people through a sea and grant them wellsprings in the desert. He will hit a rock to give them water and die alone by a river he can't cross. And they, his people, they will follow him. They will cross the sea and drink from the wellsprings, flock to the rock and cross the river once He'll die. 
but they will do so begrudgingly, distrustfully. They will take his water and his miracles and see him as other. They won't see him as a man of flesh and blood and wants, but this will come later. For now, there are only bloody fingers and a sense of wonder. One day soon, Moses will replace the Nile's water with red blood. But today, for once, it's Tzipora turn to birth a miracle. It's Tzipora's turn to birth a miracle. Moses was born in blood, but knew only of the water. Today, Tzipora showed him what is to come from blood. The blood is dripping off Tzipora's fingers, and Moses can't tear his eyes away. Um, Mark, did you want to say something? Um, you know, it's just nothing, nothing uh, in particular. It's just that this story is um, has is so clearly uh, tumultuous in the sense that uh, there is um, a, a tremendous uh, struggle with the emergence of unconscious fantasy and the anxiety that's involved in it, and the the urgent need to, um, in some way. Um, create the uh, the last disguise of the dream, the secondary revision of the unconscious material. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. I was so exactly thinking that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I, I don't want. I don't. <laughs> I, I don't want to get. I don't want to just. Um, you know. But, but what I hear, Mark, is that like you're. You know, like this is this is the beauty of myth, right? This is the beauty yes, and the power of myth is that it describes what's true, Absolutely. right? And, and it's very hard to get at with words and very hard to explain, but, but does it, right? It, you know, we, we yes. feel and sense the anxiety. We feel and sense the crossing of boundaries. We feel and sense the emergence, right, of Moshe's task, of Moshe's identity, of Moshe's role, in each of us, right? What it means to resist that, what, what all the things that you're talking about that I'm sure make sense um, uh, is that it's the truth. This is who we are. And these stories are, are our people's way of talking about that, which is true. And that's really hard to talk about. I think that's absolutely true that this is, this is the essence of myth uh, and the importance of myth. Um, and uh uh, the the myth is is is, uh, um, is, uh, dis- is such a uh, disguised way of speaking the truth. Right, right. Uh, it is uh, so that uh, the truth, uh, while it is uh, in some ways unintelligible to the secondary process, the emotional truth is very very much apparent and very clear. Um, and I think that this. Uh, this story is a story of, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to get into all of that. That's, uh, that just gets Wait. into But, um, so it's resonant here, right? You know, the emotional sure. stuff is, is resonant. Sure. I mean, it, you just can't miss it, even though we don't know exactly what's going on and it's kind of confusing. It's like, so is life, <laughs> right? The, the truths here are all about how messy and confusing it all is. And we say, well, whose legs Who's the one? Who's in danger? Maybe the answer is all of it, right? I mean, you know, there's because it's a mess. It's a, it's a mess. It's confusing, and life is confusing. And sometimes this one's threatened. Sometimes that. Sometimes this part of our psyche, the parent. Sometimes the child. Right there. 
there's so much right there that in some ways it's like it's our Western mind that needs it to be more specific and pointed for the for the mythological tradition. It's just fine right, the way it is. Yeah, right? and this, in this in this particular story, the anxiety is such that the 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 primary process language is uh, very close to the surface with all of the condensation, displacement, pars pro toto representation, and so on, of primary process. And uh, um, in, in a way, uh, the question of uh, uh, trying to specify whose legs, for example, is to impose a secondary process question on a primary process yeah, yeah. statement. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I was just reading a piece that was talking about Moshe was adopted at, at the point, he was taken away from Tsipora right at the point where language is developing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea that when he says he has difficulty with speech, it's because his, his learning to speak, the time when you're learning to put those things into words, um, the secondary is what I, you know, heard, heard you say, you know, kind of the secondary way to process stuff is to speak about it. And that he, he is interrupted. His development is interrupted at that point because he's taken away from his mother. Because weaning would have happened at three or four. Um, and so uh, right as you're developing language. And so a lot of what we see with Moshe is this pre-verbal. Uh, and, and, uh, okay, David? Amy, I, I can't help but wonder, is there a message here that every woman is Moses' mother? I, 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 every source was a feminist source. And it was a wonderful day. I mean, it was incredibly interesting. Would a male source have looked at this differently, you think? Um, I think, yeah, male sources have tended to look at it differently. But even our classical commentators, Rashi, even Ezra, they all recognize that Sipora is the one who saves the day. Like, they all get it, that Sipora is the one who acts. Sipora knows what's going on. And, you know, and also they're the ones who acknowledge that the midwives are the first act of civil disobedience in the Torah. Yeah, yeah that they are paradigmatic, virtuous, <clears throat> righteous women who had the courage to stand up to Pharaoh. You know, like, so even our classical male commentators have noted the strength of the oh, women of the Torah, including Re- Rebecca and including, you know, like they say, like, you don't push our women around. Right? They, they take action. They, they behave in ways that are, they are active in our story. And um, so even, but yeah, certainly I think women's voices lift up different aspects uh, of the the story. Um, But, but I think class, it's always been really interpreted that Sipora is the one who knows what's going on here. Right. Could you illuminate one thing for me? I've always had this idea that circumcision was such a profoundly Jewish act, but it just seems to me that that was all over the Middle East, the Midianites, Is that where we derived all of this from, that that was the act that it may have been thousands of years preceding Moses? Yes, it became a paradigmatically Jewish thing, but it wasn't always. No, it it came from from very common uh, fertility rituals at, at, at adolescence or at marriage. That was, was that an Egyptian ritual as well? Do you think? Because I only see this from a Midianite perspective. You know, what did you say? 
Was it uh, was that a, a Egyptian procedure as well? Because yes. we see it from the Midianite perspective. Yes. Right? Yeah, we have we have representations of circumcision from Egypt in hieroglyphics. So oh. we know what happened in Egypt as well. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.